Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to the 151st episode of The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. And today I am so happy to welcome, for a return visit, television star of Homicide Hunter, Detective Lieutenant Joe Kenda. Now, the last time Joe was on the show, just shy of a year ago, he was on to discuss his true crime nonfiction title, Killer Triggers. Well, he's back with his debut fiction title, All Is Not Forgiven. Now, before you get all excited about seeing that handsome mug of Joe's, I'm sorry to say, because of tech issues, we weren't able to connect visually. However, you're in for an earful of Joe on today's episode of The Thriller Zone. Let's talk about All Is Not Forgiven. I'm, in case we get technically uh, foobarred, I just want to say I love this book, Joe. It was, God, it was so much fun to read. Oh, I'm glad you think so. That's a nice thing to say. It, to have somebody break out with a debut of this quality in an in a fiction world having spent his whole life in nonfiction if you will between detective lieutenant and television shows it's I, I was just amazed i told tammy i told my wife i was just like man I, I can't believe this is his first foray and if this is any indication of what is to come this guy should not stop doing this well, that's very kind of you. I do have another book in the manuscript in the hands of the Blackstone. And it's also fiction. It also involves the subject of fentanyl, oh boy. which is at the forefront of this in this country. What people don't realize is fentanyl has been in this country since the early 1970s. It was originally introduced as an intravenous painkiller to replace morphine or surgery, because it's synthetic. It's manufactured from common chemicals. The trouble is, it's 100 times more powerful than morphine and 50 times more powerful than heroin. The result of that is it requires exact measurements, which has to be done by somebody that knows how and not by some moron on a street corner. <laughs> So the book delves into that whole issue of how this became significant to the cartels and why it's now widespread and why there are doctors addicted to it and anesthesiologists addicted to it and on and on. We killed 150,000 people last year with this drug because this country has an insatiable desire to use narcotics. Anyway, that is the, the that's kind of the, the nutshell of the next book. But it's pretty well done, I think. And we're gonna find out here pretty soon. How are you experience what is your has been your experience since all is not forgiven dropped in on bookshelves nationwide? Which been from what I understand it's done very well. I don't pay a lot of attention to it. I'm in the middle of doing a number of things with TV. So there's like uh, so many hours in the day you know, to really pay attention. But when I go to book signings, which I don't do a lot of, because my road warrior days are behind. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, you know, I did, uh, I had half a million air miles on Delta and half a million on American. I was 
Uh, you know, and I belong to every hotel club there is. I have eight zillion points, which will get me half a Hershey bar if I talk nice to them. You know? <laughs> but anyway, I decided I had enough horsepower these days to not have to travel. So when they called me and said, you're now, and they have told me, they being the network, that I am the, ba the face and the voice of the ID network. And they want to do this and they want to do that. I said, all right. That's fine. We can do that. But I want to tell you, I'm sick and tired of airplanes and I hate hotels. So you want to film me? You bring them out to Muhammad. You film me here in, in Virginia Beach area. And I'm on board. And they said, no problem. So they rented an office building, a floor of an office building. I know they found Boulevard Virginia turn it into a set. They send a crew. I get car service from my house to the set of return every day. <laughs> Very nice, you know? And no more standing in line finding out why the third airplane isn't going to fly because the pilot's drunk and the co-pilot's under arrest. You know, so, <laughs> I say, okay, fine. So now all I have to do is I walk out of my driveway and my limo please. Nice. It's, this, is what's, this is what happens when you get to be a big dog. Apparently. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty scary. I never thought in my life that when I first had was on television, my wife and I went to a mall to obtain something for my daughter that she couldn't live without. So we go to the mall. Now, I'm not big on malls because there are humans in malls. But anyway, we were there. And this woman walks up to me, and I had just, I just retired. I had a lot of them in me, you know, when the TV thing started. So the cop. This woman walks up to me and says, I, I saw your first show. I just laughed. That was really wonderful. And I looked at her and I said, take your hand out of your purse. <laughs> she looked at me real funny and she said, what'd you say? I said, take your hand out of your purse. And she turned white. Now. And my wife grabbed my arm. She said, yo, she's just a fan. <laughs> <laughs> so it took a while to get past that. You know, to where it, because in the, in, when I worked, What's coming out of that person, Tom? You know what I mean? Sure. So, uh, yeah, that's that's why. It's been a dramatic change. When I, when I was working, nobody was happy to see me. No. And uh, the unhappier I made them, the better job I had done. And now, because of TV and because of books, I go to book signings, there's 150 people there. Wow. I've been to one book signing, there were 700 people there. Wow. Barnes & Noble had to move the book racks out of the way. Wow. To get the crowd inside, you know. I went to a movie theater in, uh, here in Virginia. They rented the whole theater for, for a book sign. <laughs> it's, it's nuts. I mean, it really is nuts. I don't know why. Uh, I guess I'm living proof that even a blind pig finds an acorn. Off the top, <laughs> you know? Joe, let me ask you this, and this is something I think about often. Now, this this thriller zone, this podcast is a thriller zone, so it's you know basically I'm interviewing the best thriller writers in the world. If it has to do with books, TV, or film, we're talking mm -hmm. about it. But mm -hmm. the the single number one most successful genre of podcast right now is true crime. Every yeah. single time, year after year, what do you suppose it is about us and our passion for crime? I think it's not about the crime. I think it's about the truth. 
They're looking for something that isn't invented by a writer who's currently on strike in Hollywood because the plot lines tend to become very predictable. Criminals always wear $9,000 suits and they have private jets and they have a bunch of minions who wear $6,000 suits. They're ready to go at any moment. They don't apparently have a life. They sit around and look distraught. And all those sorts of things is how that seems to work. And it's done that forever. And the truth revolves around people seeing something they can identify with. This guy's not in a $9,000 suit. He works at UPS. And I worked there with him. And they arrested him for murder, for God's sake. Or the lady that works at the grocery store who gets arrested for killing her child. And everybody that works at the grocery store, oh, my God, you know, that's Martha or whoever it is. Right. So it gives them something they can touch and something they can understand and something different. And humans are very predictable, but they're also very capable of doing anything. And I do mean anything. I don't understand people, but they interest me as to why they behave in the way that they do. The reason wild animals run from us is because they know who we are. Yeah. (laughs) We're the most dangerous animal on this planet. We are the apex predator. You know, in Mother Nature, animals kill for need. They kill to survive. Humans kill for pleasure. And there's no worse form of life than that. That is horrible. You know, I was watching something <clears throat> had to do with you uh, when I was reading about you. I'm, I, n- I know that you were with the uh, Colorado Springs Police Department, detective, yeah. lieutenant. You have years and years, 23 years, uh, th- yeah. 356 homicide cases. And what I was reading is that you joined in 73. It was like four years later, you were promoted to detective because you volunteered to take over uh, a, a murder investigation. And you seem to have solved it in uh, what they had called unsolvable. So it's a two-part question. Why, how, how was it that it remained unsolved for so long? And was that the impetus, that turning point for you that kind of launched you into your career? The facts are this. I applied to go to investigations uh, out of patrol. I was a uniformed officer when I came out of the police department. And uh, I did that for uh, close to three years. Mm-hmm. And then I had enough time and I had enough recommendations from my supervisors that I could apply for specialized units. Now, at the time I joined the PD, which was a million years ago, a college degree was a rare thing. They didn't require a college education. You had a high school diploma, you're a policeman. Uh, I had a college degree, University of Pittsburgh. And uh, so I was known as college boy to the other cops. Mm-hmm. They meant it in a derogatory way, and they would always say, "Well, you think you're smarter than us? Well, it's because I am smarter than you." <laughs> you know, and I, I got a kick out of it. I, you know, they thought it would upset me, and I just thought it was funny. Yeah. So I'm a burglary detective, which I referred to myself as trivial pursuit. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no harm here. The insurance company will buy you a new television. Why are we so concerned about this? Mm-hmm. You know, but anyway, that's what I'm doing. And I'm bored to tears. A double shooting happens in a convenience store. The clerk is shot in the head. 
and a customer is lured inside by the shooter and shot five times. The guy takes like 50 bucks out of the register and he runs. Now, armed robberies are committed by perfect strangers. There's no link between the shooter and the victim. Right. So the old-time homicide detectives that were at this crime scene are all bemoaning the fact that they'll never solve this, you know, because this is not a husband killing his wife. It's not something real obvious. And they know this is going to be a long and hard road. So they're yapping back and forth. I overheard them because I was called there to be an extra pair of hands, you know, go knock on doors if somebody saw anything, so on and so forth. But I overheard that and I said, hey, I'll take this case. And these guys jumped on it. They huh. said, oh, give it to the college boy. He'll solve it before recess. <laughs> and everybody laughed, you know. Uh -huh. And the sergeant who was running the homicide unit, he said, I'll check with your sergeant. It's okay with him. It's okay with me. I said, fine. So I thought, okay, Kenda, and you've opened your mouth. Now it's live or die. Right. You put all your cards on the table, and either you've got a hand or you don't. But that's the only way that I thought I could do it. So five days later, I brought the guy into the investigation division in handcuffs. And I convicted him and sent him away forever. And uh, to their credit, one of those older guys walked up to me and patted me on the back. He said, not bad for a college boy. Wow. And I was in homicide the next day. And I stayed there for almost 20 years. So what was the secret that, uh, I mean, of course you recall it because you did it, but how did you snag this guy? I'm, and over 50 bucks. It's determination. Yeah. Okay? It's determination and trying to understand human nature. What would people do when they're under great stress and they're frightened and they make mistakes? Let's find a mistake that could lead us somewhere. During the course of the struggle with the customer, he shot five times. The customer fought for his life and struggled with this guy and pulled a bracelet off of his wrist. Oh. It, it was a, 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 a cheap kind of thing you'd buy at a mall yeah. stand in the middle of the hallway, you know, five yeah. bucks. And it had a girl's name on it. And the name was Ingrid. Now, the, the, the witness said that, that one of the witnesses said the guy was black. Well, he's black. Ingrid is a German name. Right. And it's not probably a black female. Probably. Right. So I took that bracelet to a jeweler that I knew. I said, what can you tell me about this? He said, well, it's junk. I don't sell anything like that. I said, I know you don't sell anything like that, but is there anything unusual about it? He said, well, there is one thing that is. I said, what? It's shadow engraved. What do you mean? Well, there's a new machine out there that'll cut a double cut on lines. It's kind of nifty looking, and uh, people have found it to be very popular. Uh -huh. And this, it's done that way. The name Ingrid, if you notice, there's a line for I, but then there's a shadow line next to it. Oh yeah, I mean, it's like a double cut, you know. So it has a kind of gives it depth. Uh -huh. It's like it stands out, but it really doesn't. Right. You know, but it's just done that way. So I so said, well, who makes that thing? So there's only one company. The Hermes engraving machine in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh 
Okay. So I call them up. You guys have, oh, yeah, yeah. How many of those do you have in Colorado Springs? And they, they check, and they said, we got 54 of them. Okay. So I went to every place that had a machine. Oh. I said, do you remember this name? No. Do you say, well, we sell something. That, that's not really what we sell. So by the, I got to like the 30th one. And it was a guy in a booth, in a mall, in the main walkway, you know, where they sell junk jewelry. Sure. And he says, yeah, I do remember that. Why? The guy that was with her was an asshole. <laughs> well, I'm looking for an asshole. All right. <laughs> I said, was he black? Yeah, he's black. But she's not black. She's white. And she sounds foreign. An accent. Really? Yeah. Now, Colorado Springs has Fort Carson, the largest infantry post in the United States. The 4th Infantry Division, that's their headquarters. They got 30,000 GIs. Where do they go all the time? They go to Germany. Uh -huh. What do they bring back with them? A woman, usually, you know? Uh -huh. And so, all right, black guy, German girl, and he's got a bad attitude. Shooters generally do. Yeah. So I said, can you, how do you pay for it? Well, I don't remember that. You keep your receipts? Yeah. Let me see them. So he passed me a shoebox that has like a thousand receipts in it. Oh, God. So I sat down at the steps in that hallway at the mall. And I went through every one of them until I found one. This girl's name, Ingrid. Uh -huh. Paid cash. It's like six bucks with a tax. You know? His name's not on that. So I'm looking at this, and I go to her address on the west side of Colorado Springs. And there's nothing, she's not there. I don't want to contact her yet, but there's nobody around. I look the place over, and I finally knocked on a neighbor's door, and I said, excuse me, uh, I'm looking for a missing person, and we're thinking maybe this girl might know something about it. Do you know anything about her? And he said, well, no, it's a, it's a German girl. She lives alone. Oh. So there's no black guy that lives with her. So she lives alone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you sure about that? Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I kind of know her. She's a nice girl. She works. You know, told me where. So, so I didn't care about that yet. So back to the PD. What do you have for activity in the block where she lives? Any calls for the police, any disturbances, anybody, anything involving a black male that may have been in some kind of argument with this woman? Nope, nope. Any traffic? Well, there's a parking ticket. A parking ticket. Yeah. What's it for? Parking wrong side to curb. <laughs> or somebody parks because it's convenient. You know, they don't turn around and they just park because the rules don't apply them right now that fits all right uh -huh. so who's that guy they got a registration check and he is a black male uh -huh. and he is just out of the army and he lives less than six blocks from the robbery site uh -huh. one thing leads to another you know what i mean 
so that's how, and we turned it, and we got the evidence. I found the gun in his apartment with a search warrant. I arrested him, and I, as the guy pointed out at the mall, he was an asshole. But uh, he went away, and the state remains paying his rent. Oh, boy. Well, first of, all right, first of all, Joe, great story. The way you walked me through it, I was there every step of the way, which is interesting because we don't get to... We don't get to hear things like that. So uh, we're talking to a guy who lived it, slept it, breathed it year after year. So thank you for that. That was awesome. Um, The thing that always blows my mind is the, well, the very first thing I want to say is the level of stupidity. But what you're saying is so often is people are backed into a corner, backed into a corner. They're, they're, they're afraid of something, afraid for their life or just flat out desperate and do desperate things without really thinking about it. Absolutely. I would say that to people in interrogations. The guy's really playing the game. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, fuck you. Yeah. I'm not telling you nothing. Yeah, okay, whatever. I say, now I'm going to ask you something. How many mistakes do you think you made? What? Did you make five mistakes? Could you have made ten? Did you make some that you don't realize you even made? Yeah. And you watch the wheels start to turn in the guy's head. You can see it in his eyes. I said, you know, I'm not going to retire for a long time. I have nothing else to do but find those mistakes. (laughs) 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 You see him, his eyes go to pinpoints, you know? Yeah. And it's, oh, I touched a nerve, didn't I? (laughs) <laughs> hey joe you have you have such a good just such a cool voice did i and if and if this is an obvious question you can just kick me later did you do the audiobook version of all is not forgiven i did just the intro to it okay they wanted me to do i i said i'll do the whole book I said no there are too many characters in there of a foreign nature you know, there's a German, there's yeah. a Brit, there's all kinds of people. So they wanted to have somebody with a correct accent, which isn't me. Yeah. So I read the, the the initial introduction to the book, the fact that it is fiction, the fact that everyone in it is fictional being, except for me, as I'm in it. Right. But ultimately, it could just as well be a reality because what is in that book was inspired by all the different things I've seen and done. Sure. So there is, um, you know, you can get, you probably have had people say to you, you can have a bit of a gruff exterior. It can be a little uh, disarming or um, intimidating, but I was watching some, the other night I was just flipping across and I drilled down on some of your shows and I found, um, what was it? You were, you were telling a story and you were doing, uh, it's like a promo for Stop the Chaos, I think. It was on ID. And I could have sworn I saw you smiling when describing, you were describing a brand new recruit that you met when investigating a murder where a woman was shot in the face twice and had her home burned to try to cover it up, which, as yep. you say, didn't work. But you, the thing I loved about it, it's one of the few times I've seen you grin big ear to ear, and it and it struck me because of your standard no small demeanor. But I bet you if we asked Kathy, she'd say that you're just a pussycat, right? And she would. Yeah. She would. Yeah, <laughs> she would. It's all a shtick. You know what I mean? It's just part of the deal. Yeah. 
But let's go across that way to impress people that the fact that, you know, I used to arrest people and I, I learned something early on. It was a trial and error affair, but I would arrest people and I would decide I've got to make them afraid of me because they're armed or they could go for the gun I can see in their waistband. Right. And I really don't want to shoot anybody. And I never did the whole time I was a policeman. Wow. I never fired my weapon. I arrested a hell of a lot of people for murder, but I never fired a gun at anyone. That's amazing. But what I would do is I would approach you in my standard cheap suit. We all look like a bunch of Filipino bookmakers. I mean, we <laughs> bought whatever suits we could buy for 50 bucks, you know, because we didn't have any money. Right. And uh, I'd have a badge in one hand and a gun in the other. I'm left-handed, so the gun's in my left hand. My badge is in my right hand because I don't want you to say... I didn't know he was a policeman. I've got the badge right out there by the gun. And very quietly, I would say, my name is Kenda, and you're under arrest for first-degree murder. If you don't do what I say, I'm going to kill you right here and right now. And they would raise their hands and not even reach for the gun I could see. Yeah. Because they would think, this guy means it. Yeah. I picked a door one time on a bad guy who's a convict. He's been around the block, you know. And I had a Remington 870 12-gauge pump shotgun. And I kicked the door, and he sat both upright in bed. He's got a gun on the nightstand. I've got that shotgun pointed right at his face. I'm not six feet away from him. But he's looking at the gun, he's looking at me. Looking at the gun, looking at me. He's thinking, can I get to that gun? Right. And I looked at him and I said, hey, you won't hear this go off. <laughs> and he put his hands up. That's such a great line, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> ah. but let, now, I, I had a, I had a, I had a, I, it's not that I wouldn't kill somebody. Cause I would. Sure. My feeling was, I'm going to go home tonight. If you have to go to the morgue so I can go home, well, so what? Yeah. You shouldn't behave like that. And you didn't have to face this risk. So that was my approach. But if you do it quietly, you're different. You're not yelling and screaming, get your hands up, oh my God. Right. That's what they expect you to do. Yeah. You don't do that. And they're going, like, whoa, who, who, who's this guy? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I want to circle back to that story that I was reading the other uh, a minute ago that I was sharing with the audience because if I remember correctly, you were this was a new recruit and it seems like the recruit was super nervous. He'd only been in, maybe on the force for like a week or something. No, no, no. He'd been on for this. The trueness of the story is that this kid was in patrol. I knew him. I'd seen him on a number of different crime scenes. He was sharp. He had a way with people. He could get people to tell him things. He was pleasant. He was the perfect guy for homicide because he knew what he was doing, but he could get along with anybody, even a gang member. Everybody liked him, you know? Yeah. So I encouraged him to apply for homicide, and he did it. And I took him because he had to get past me to get into homicide. So the first day he comes to work as a homicide detective, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, and he's all spiffed up in a three-piece suit. I said, Gary, Derek, you look like a banker. You look great. He said, thank you, sir. 
I said, come in my office. So he walked in. And I said, uh, you see that smoke rising down there in the south part of the city? Yeah. You notice this black smoke, petroleum-based. It's not a wood fire. It's a building. Oh, yeah. I said, the fire department called, and there's a dead woman in that house who lives there. And somebody shot her twice in the face with a large-caliber handgun. It's a concealment fire, Derek. Somebody's trying to burn up a crime scene. Now, the, the, the deal is, the reason I'm pointing this out to you is because it's your case. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, sir, this is my first day. I said, yeah, that's true, Eric, it is. But you go from being a new guy to an old guy around here in about 15 months. So I selected you for this job because I think you can swim. And I'm going to throw you in the deep end of the pool and we're going to find out. Now, I'm going to go with you. And unless you do something hopelessly illegal, I won't say a word. Let's go. He was so nervous he couldn't put the key in the door lock in, the, in, a, in his car, in the police car. And we arrived, and uh, I watched him. Three days later, we turned the shooter, and he did that all by himself. And I said, Derek, you are in the right profession. Wow. And he absolutely was. You know, he was just good at it. And uh, he learned. The first thing to do is calm down. The second thing to do is put your hands in your pockets and let the crime scene speak to you because it will. It speaks very quietly, but you have to listen. And I, my guys would think I was not, gang girls would think I was nuts when I was in a crime scene. The bodies there, you know. and I'd be looking at something that was broken, and I would be speaking to the suspect out loud. So why'd you break that? You didn't break anything else, but you broke that. Uh-huh. Why'd you do that? And there, there my guy said, oh, there he goes again. <laughs> oh, Jesus. You know? <laughs> and everybody would walk away. But it meant something to me to get a sense of what we're dealing with here. You know? Yeah. What's the motivation here? Is this somebody that knows somebody? Is it revenge? What, what is it? You know? Uh, so it's interesting. It, it really is. It's very, it's maddening. And uh, it will drive you crazy. My longest case took me nine years. Oh, my God. Nine years. Oh, my. This Here's a kid. I'll tell you this real quick. All yeah. Right? yeah. He's a young boy. He's an oops baby. His parents are older. But all of a sudden, here he is. Right? Yeah. They got a new baby. Yeah. So when he's eight years old, he gets hit by a car. Damn near dies. Gets a serious head injury. And it just reduces his mental capacity. Where he never advances past five or six years old. So now he's in his 30s. His parents are dead. He lives in a motel where you wouldn't keep a dog you didn't like. He works at Goodwill Industries uh, and he's able to work and he's able to perform simple tasks and they pay him and he spends his money on his rent and between Goodwill and his motel as a liquor store he spends the rest of his paycheck on booze now all these other rats that live in this building are all criminals of the first order they have criminal records as long as your arm and they utilize this kid as someone to blame if they commit a crime they say well i didn't do it eric eric did it eric stanley houston was his name Nobody cared about him. 
it made the one ads in the papers and you know, family's dead. He's just some bum who has mental disorder and somebody killed him and so what? Somebody stabbed him 31 times in the chest and stole, stole a $40 boom box out of his room. A stereo worth 40 bucks. Wow. Bought it in a pawn shop. Okay? And it's a, it's a blitz attack on this guy. But I knew at the crime scene that the blood drops, there were blood will drop in circles from an incised wound. When you stab somebody with a knife, particularly if it's not a hunting knife, a kitchen knife, a pocket knife, there's no hilt. So when you start stabbing with great force and blood is produced, the knife gets slimy and your hand slides down the knife and you get cut in your palm from the blade. Right. So now our killer kills this guy. He stands up, he walks to a sink, and there's the drop bleeding from an incised wound. Our man is hurt, and that's his blood. Okay? Uh-huh. And he tries to clean up in the sink and all that stuff. We take samples of everything. This is before DNA. Right. This is in the ninth, early 1980s. But I have the samples as I collected all the evidence. We had a case with too many suspects. 52 criminals all knew him, hung out with him, drank his whiskey, and blamed him for committing crimes they committed. Eric got arrested a lot, never got convicted of anything, because he never did anything. Wow. He was unable to assess whether someone was his friend or not. And they took advantage of him. So I knew it was one of those guys. I, in fact, I thought I knew which one. But I couldn't prove anything. Because nobody's got an alibi, nobody's got any physical evidence, nobody got nothing, we got nothing. So we worked like dogs for a long time. Five years go by. State Patrol arrested a guy in the interstate who announces he killed Eric Stanley Houston. Confesses to a state Iowa patrolman. They bring him in, turns out he's a lunatic. He didn't kill anybody. And it was a waste of all our time. This goes on for nine years. Oh. Finally, DNA rolls around. And I said, that's the first case we're going to use it on. And I convicted two people of first-degree murder using DNA blood evidence from the crime scene. Uh, the first DNA case in the history of the state of Colorado. Wow. That case. Wow. And when I was when I was doing it, I was in like year six or something, and I had a kid that I put in homicide, pretty sharp. And I handed him a note. I said, "This is a lead in the Houston case, and uh, I want you to go work that." And he looked at me and he said, "That's a kid from the motel on the west side." I said, "Yeah, it is." Well, nobody cares about him. And I turned white as a piece of paper. And everybody that worked in their, in their cubicles, they all looked at me. They heard what he said. And everybody got up and left. Because <laughs> no. they knew, you know. And I said, let me tell you something, pal. Don't ever say nobody cares. Right. Because I care. Now, here's the deal. Either you take this lead and you work it, or I'll have you working at the airport midnight to eight with Tuesdays and Thursdays off writing parking tickets. Now, do you understand me? <laughs> yes, sir. Now go work that fucking lead. You know? <laughs> yeah, oh, my. 
you know, everybody could, could, and they told him, so what, what's wrong with you, man? Don't ever say that to him, you know? Yeah. So anyway, Eric got his stand Kurt. Nobody was there to enjoy it from his family because they were all dead, but I enjoyed it. Do you think, I put those two guys away. do you think patience, which, which do you think is more important? Cause I'm sitting here listening to this story. I'm thinking, man, which is more important patience or persistence? They are equally important. Yeah. You need both. Yeah. It's not it's not that I'm smarter than anybody else, because I'm not. But I'm a dog with a bone. Yeah. I won't give up. Yeah. There's no such thing as surrender. We're gonna continue. We'll figure something out. Something's gonna come our way. Somebody's knee's gonna touch the ground. It happens. Well, this begs this question, and I for a guy who's been around uh, in that world for so long, saw that many cases, had such a prolific career, and was so damn good at it, do you ever, ever look back over your shoulder and miss it at all? Or do you feel like it was just all, you, you put in your time and it's done? When I, when I, when I, you know, you, you just know when you're, you're at your emotional wit's end. Yeah. I knew uh, about three months before I retired, I wasn't even listening anymore. Everything around me was white noise. Yeah. I was, I was Max. I didn't want to tell another mother who wasn't coming home anymore. I just didn't want to do that. Yeah. And it was got to that point where I was overwhelmed by it. And on one particular day, I lost my temper with a suspect. I really lost my temper and uh, I walked into my office and I cranked in an inner office memorandum, which it was known on the police department as a blue sheet because it was blue in color. And I said, effective September 1st, 1996, I retired from the Colorado Springs Police Department. Very true the years. There you go. Done. One sentence, one line. I was there on Friday and I wasn't there on Monday. And my guys were so distressed, they were calling me to authorize overtime. <laughs> and I was gone. And I said, I can't do that. I don't work. Well, the new guy doesn't know what he's doing. Well, that's not my problem. Yeah. You know? Was it went on for quite a while. Was it one inciting incident or was it, had, had your, uh, your tank just gotten overflowed full? Just It was the, it was the last straw. It was yeah. A, one of the units, I, I was commander of major crimes, which is sexual assault against children and adults, homicide, physical assault, all the fun stuff, gangs, fugitives. That was all under major crimes. So it's a violent world. Yeah. And it, we were having a very bad day. And there was a 74-year-old man who sexually assaulted his five-year-old grandson. And they had him under arrest. And... Uh, I had run out of detectives. I said, okay, I'll take the, I'll take the guy, the old guy, the one that attacked his grandson. And you do all these other people. Okay, so I'm talking to this fool. And I looked at him, I said, why did you touch that little boy like that? And he said, he came on to me. Oh. And that's the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember, I heard several guys saying, Lieutenant, Lieutenant, because I had that guy on the floor, and I was strangling him. Oh, jeez. And he was turning blue. And they didn't know what to do. The boss is killing somebody. What, what do we do? Yeah. You know? So finally, I just dropped him, and he 
choked and coughed and puked, you know, but he was alive. And that's when I walked in and typed the memo. And that was the end of that. Wow. Wow. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's so disturbing on so many levels. <clears throat> and I'm seeing more of that in television. Uh, seeing more things that involve children, and that that sickens me to a degree that I can't even. It's enough to make me want well, to turn away from it. When I stopped Homicide Hunter at nine seasons, I did that for a reason. I called the network. We were ten episodes in to a twenty episode season, so we were half done with it. And I talked to the boss, and I said, you know, I'm stopping this after season nine. What? Because I'm the golden goose, right? Right. They were making a ton of money. I said, I have no other cases that I'm willing to present. Because what I have remaining are children and babies, and I won't do those. Yeah. And the others I have left are absolutely too disgusting for a general TV audience. So we're done. And by the way, thanks for the money. Yeah. I hung up, and that lasted about 20 minutes. The phone rings, and my wife answered it. And it was the boss, and he said, is Joe there? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's here. I got him. Taking the phone, and he says, Joe, we're like the Corleones. The only way out of this for you is death. (laughs) We're going to come up with another series. Okay, all right. So now we do American Detective. And not my case. Now, wait a minute. So you you did... Ho- so Homicide Hunter is what made you a household name. American Detective was came along second. But is this the a new variation on that? Or is this a new show that no, you did? No, it's, it's the same one. They've retitled it Homicide Hunter, American Detective. To tie it to me. Uh-huh. But the, the initial Homicide Hunter was 144 episodes. Jeez. One hour long. Okay? Yeah. And I did all those. And now we've had about 22 episodes of American Detective, plus three two-hour movies, and I just finished filming eight new episodes of American (laughs) Detective, plus another two-hour movie. But they're still in production, so there's no air dates yet. But yeah, only as other people's murder cases. But murder is murder. Sure. Uh, Unfortunately, the facts are always the same. The names change. It's the only difference. So, Joe, how long are you going to keep at it? Do you ever does Kathy ask you that, honey? How long? How much longer? Yeah, I don't know. I really, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I've worked all my life. I had a paper route when I was nine. You know, it's a. Uh, I don't. Looking out the window doesn't appeal to me. No. So you know, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Well, I can say without blowing any smoke up your skirt, you're a fascinating dude. I've really grown to like you, and I could listen to you talk all day long. It's just you got you got magic in you, dude. Oh, thank you. That's very yeah. kind. Of, I never thought that, but apparently something works. I've never had a script. I say whatever I want <laughs> on all the programs I've ever filmed. Well, now here's an inside scoop, folks. Uh, as Joe was telling that story about the thing I brought up about the rookie who was wearing the banker suit and went on to make a build a career, you told that story right here on this podcast, almost word for word as to what I heard on the television. And I'm like, oh my god, wait a minute! I know you don't have a script in front of you. I'm like, how did he do that? And that that episode had to be months and months and months, if not years ago. So it was. <laughs> I have a good memory. No doubt. 
Well, listen, you have been so gracious with your time. Like I said, I could talk to you forever, but I know you're getting prepped for a little trip. And I just want to say that I hope all is not for uh, all is not forgiven does super well. I can't wait for the next book because, folks, I read this book in two sittings. And it, it, if I didn't say this before, it's when you read the book, you hear Joe's voice in your ear and you can't decide, is it real? Is it Memorex? You know, how much happened and how much is fiction, but it, it was just a fantastic read. So kudos again. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, listen, thank you uh, for your time, Joe, and enjoy uh, your trip. I hope it's I hope it's a nice long one, is it? It's two weeks. Okay. And I'm taking my son and his new wife at my expense to Ireland as a little bit of a wedding gift. Nice. So the four of us are going, and uh, my show is very popular in Ireland. So uh, I'll have to deal with that a little bit. I got some press things I got to do along there. Well, I wish you the best. Tell Kathy we said hello, and I hope to talk to you again soon, Joe. Oh, please. And I wish you all the success that can be wished for. So anyway. Thank you, Joe. You be well. You too. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Joe. Always a treat. Now, folks, here's an inside peek of how we're kicking off the month of October. I'm pretty excited to be able to welcome Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group. Now, Mark is a highly ranked literary agent and works with authors to manage and grow their careers. So we hope you'll join us Monday, October 2nd, as we kick off October with Mark Gottlieb of Trident Media Group right here on The Thriller Zone. Until then, I hope you'll subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash The Thriller Zone. And of course, you can always find us on our website, thethrillerzone.com, as well as all podcast channels. I'm David Temple, your host. I'll see you next time for another edition of The Thriller Zone. Your front row seat to the best thrillers. The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.